Psalm 119. We're working through this, this long, long chapter for the summer. Uh, we are not even halfway through, I don't think. So we're, uh, this, is the, this is a long chapter, like crazy long. So we're just taking basically 16 verses a Sunday, and that should get us through to about September. And um, I'm excited to, to see this. It's, cra- it's crazy because every time I come into this, I'm thinking, you know, Psalm 119 is a pretty repetitive psalm. It, it talks about a lot of the same themes. Um, and, and so sometimes I walk into this going, okay, I'm not sure if I have enough to like stretch for 30 minutes. And then I get into it and I'm like, oh boy, I've got too much to talk about. So that's how it works. We'll do our best to keep this, keep this uh, at a reasonable length, but there's just so much here and it's really encouraging. So um, as we get into this, we're looking at 16 verses each section of the psalm is about eight verses long, okay? Um, And so the first eight verses that we're going to look at this morning are really, are vital. They're vital because what they do is they talk about the internal work of grace, what God does in us, what God does in us through Jesus, how he accomplishes salvation for us, and what the results are of salvation are as they work out in our lives. And then the the second section of eight verses that we look at today are going to actually kind of go on the opposite side of that. And they're going to look at what we do with this, how we actually live uh, in light of the salvation we've received, basically how God's grace works through us and out of us. And so when I, when we see those two two things kind of working together. What we're, what we're looking at is a concept we've talked about here many times, and that is that gospel doctrine, meaning what we, what we know to be true from God's word about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus, about what he's done for us, that gospel doctrine leads us to a gospel culture. That, that gospel doctrine doesn't have any genuine life-changing power if it's not applied and actually lived out, right? We, we have to see the culture of the gospel grow in us so that we can see life, lives impacted, ours and others' lives impacted. Gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. And we're seeing that today in, in kind of a prototype sort of way in, the, in an Old Testament framework, but this Old Testament framework will get us to our Savior, Jesus, uh, very easily. It's not hard. We don't have to do a lot of jumping through hoops to get there. It's, he's pretty much right in front of us, even though these words were written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even on the earth. We know that they point us to him. So what we're seeing today is that as God works in our lives through grace, which is the first half of what we're going to see today, that grace will come out of us towards others. And that's the second half. So we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking the first half, and then we're, we're going to have to kind of do a quick fly-through of the second. But, but we'll, we'll really, I hope we'll get to what God wants us to see today. Okay, so as we walk through verse 33 through, 30, uh, through 40, rather, are all, each verse is going to give us a different thing that God's grace does in us. It's going to just, he's just going to kind of bullet point the things, some of the things. We actually looked last week at a number of other things as well, but, but here, here's what we see. 
verse 33, we'll, we'll read it. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. All right, so teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Teach me, God, what, what I need to know. What are your ways? And then he says, I will keep it to the end. What, what King David, as he writes these words, I think is trying to convey and say to his heart and to God is the, is the confidence and faith he has in the sustaining, keeping power of God in our lives. He has confidence here that as God teaches him the ways of his statutes, that he will keep it to the end. But is he going to keep these things in his own power? No, of course not. He's going to keep these things because of God's power working in him, working through him, keeping him, holding him to the end. And I think we really need to, to get this, that God is the one who sustains us. God is the one through Jesus who keeps us. God is the one who through Jesus holds us close to him because if it wasn't for God's sustaining power to keep us to the end, we would all have our lives shipwrecked. We would all walk away. God is at work in our lives to keep us and to help us keep his statutes and to remain faithful to him and remain following him, walking with him. That is God's power in us working in us to keep us. The, the old, you know, theological phrase for this is the, um, the uh, eternal security, right? It's, it's being secure eternally in Christ. And listen, eternal security has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God faithfully keeping us, holding us through his power in our lives. But we don't need to walk through life fearful that God's going to toss us to the side or let us wander so far that we can never be brought back. There are, there are seasons where we wander, right? We do wander from him. We do make those foolish decisions. Yes, we do. But God is sustaining us, keeping us, bringing us back around consistently throughout our lives to keep us to the end. That's something that is so life-giving. It is so freeing. Because to go to the opposite end of this and go, okay, it's all on me to do this for myself is a burden that we just cannot bear. This is, we, we just can't do it. We can't keep ourselves. We need him to keep us. Verse 34 says this, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Now, again, David is writing in a context of the Old Testament, right? And he's, what he knows of God, what's been revealed to him about God is the law. What the New Testament shows us is that Jesus is actually the true law keeper. As he is the law giver, he, he comes into our world as a man to uh, live under the law, to live it perfectly, to actually keep the law with his whole heart, to observe it completely. You and I are not able to completely and perfectly keep the law, which is why Jesus had to come and do this for us. And, and so as we stand in Jesus, 
Our role is not to just keep the law, but it's to rather love him with our whole heart. It's not to observe the law with our whole heart. It is to love the one who did observe it, observe it perfectly with his whole heart. God, God kind of flips the whole thing on its head where, where we don't have to live under the law because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, but we get to transition our affections towards him rather than our external obedience towards a law. We get to love him with our whole heart. And that's what Jesus does as he works in us. The internal work of grace is that it transitions our heart from law, just trying to be law-abiding people, to being people who actually love Jesus and actually want to be with him. And that actually leads us into the third thing in verse 35, where David writes, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Right there, There's this idea that as God leads us and works in us by grace, our hearts are actually turned towards delight in Jesus, in who he is, in what he's done. That, that we don't just... We shouldn't, as Christians, just be glumly wandering through life with no joy, right? We should have delight in the things of God. We should have delight in our lives. It should actually come out of us and permeate through us as well. But God creates in us a delight in him, a delight in Jesus that our hearts desperately need. We could talk about every one of these verses for 30 minutes, right? We just gotta, but we just got to keep plugging away. So let's keep working through it. Verse 36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. All right, so this is an interesting prayer. He's asking Jesus um, to, to incline his heart in a different direction, right? He says, incline my heart. Basically, Turn my heart a little bit towards something else. Incline my heart to your testimonies. And then he says, away from selfish gain. So that's interesting. Incline my heart to your word and away from selfish gain. I don't know exactly if we would put those two things together, but the word of God does. So, So let's talk about what he's saying here. I think it fundamentally, I'm going to take a drink quickly here. I think fundamentally what David is praying for here is that God would create in him a heart of generosity. Like his generosity is the opposite of selfish gain. Selfish gain says, I just want what I want right now. Just keep piling up the money, keep piling up the stuff, keep giving me more, more, more. And, and that is not actually the kind of heart that God wants to create in us. God is reshaping us as we come to him by grace. He's reshaping us away from selfish gain towards hearts of generosity that align with who God is. God is the greatest giver there is. And so as we get to know him, as we get to love him, as we continue to pursue him, our hearts begin to shift away from just being about me and what I can get 
to being about the Lord Jesus and therefore being about what I can give. This is all over the Bible. Um, Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that he who loves money will never be satisfied with money. If you love money, if that's the pursuit of your life, and this is true, by the way, for everything, not just money, but money is the thing that Solomon points out here. And by the way, Solomon was the richest man of his day uh, by far. He had all the money in the world, and he knew that it didn't satisfy. We know that just from our own world. We know that by uh, billionaires. Like billionaires don't have a lot of things to worry about, but they don't always seem to be super happy either, right? There's things missing in their lives. Money can help with a lot of things, no doubt. Not saying we all have to take a vow of poverty and live miserably in, in the gutter. But it's not money that satisfies. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 to charge or, or to encourage the, the wealthy in his church to not trust in the uncertainty of riches, but in God who generously gives to all. So we see this throughout the scriptures, that, that, it's, that as we use our resources for God's glory, we find the most joy in that. We don't find a lot of joy in the selfish gain of just trying to receive more. Again, we could talk about that all day too, so let's, but let's keep going. It says 37, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Um, one of the things that God's grace does in us is it turns our attention, it should turn our attention, away from what, it, what the, the Bible says is worthless things to the things that are worthwhile, to the things that are worthy of attention, the things that will give life I think this is, again, so important in our society. I mean, it was just as true in David's time as it is for our time, but I think it, it amplifies in our time because we are in such a visual society. We, everything is images. Everything that we consume in media is, is pictures, images, uh, whether that's scrolling through Instagram or the whole thing is just you post pictures of the things you're doing uh, and people scroll through and give it a little like or whatever. Or you, you know, you're, you're on YouTube constantly and watching videos of other people's lives and all these things. And it's so easy for us to have our eyes turned towards things that do not bring life and joy and peace, but actually lead us towards sin. And I think there are two sins in particular that this leads to. The obvious one is what we would call lust. Right? Looking, looking at someone who we don't uh, have a covenant marriage relationship with and, and allow our minds and eyes to lead us towards uh, using them and dehumanizing them for our own selfishness. That's a rampant problem, rampant problem. 
pornography is the scourge of the earth and it is uh, affecting so many men and women, but men tend to be the brunt of the, of the issue. Guys, we got we to gotta take this prayer to heart. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life. We need to take that to heart. So that's, that's one, right? Lust is, is one thing. The, but there's another sin that I think creeps in and it affects men and women equally. And um, it's, the, it's the sin of covetousness, which I know is a fancy word, but um, there's, a, there's an Old Testament, one of the Ten Commandments is do not covet. So what does coveting mean? Well, covetousness is looking at what everybody else around you has and being dissatisfied with what you have because you perceive that they have something better than you. And covetousness can have to do with the, the physical things that they own. Maybe they've got a nicer house or car than you or something. Or it could be uh, the people in their lives that maybe they've got the spouse that you wish you could have. Or again, perception. This is not None of this is actually true, right? It's how we spin these things and go, well, if, I was, if only I was married to someone like that, then I would be happy too. Or, or oh, look at how many kids they have. And I, I just really long for that in my heart. And th- it's this discontentment that leads to looking at what others have and uh, being discontented with, with what God has given you. And I'm going to rail for like two minutes here on social media because that's what that is all about. Social media exists to make you jealous of other people's lives. That is its purpose. That is what it exists for. So you can scroll endlessly through these, these stories and these images and, and watch people live their lives And you can begin to go, why can't I have their life? Here's the problem with that. Their life, as you perceive it, as you are seeing it on the internet, is not actually what happens. It is selective. Okay, a good example of this. One of my buddies who's a pastor in, uh, I think he's in Detroit. Yeah, he's in Detroit. He, He posted this very beautiful picture of him and his wife kayaking on Lake Michigan. All right, he posts that onto Instagram or whatever, and he's, he's going, oh, look, at, you know, he's getting all these likes. And then right after that, he posts the video that that picture was, you know, screenshotted from of him uh, kayaking out into the lake and then tipping over completely upside down. And he's like, social media is not, it's a snapshot in time. It doesn't reflect the fact that the guy totally ate it from this, this thing. But if you only saw the little snapshot of the two little kayaks going, you'd think, oh, that guy's got a great life. What an awesome thing that he got to do, blah, blah, blah. It's all, it's all a sham. It really is. And I'm going to stop railing about that because I can, you guys know I get fired up about this and it's nonsense. But it, this really does, I think, lead to what the Bible's calling us to Turn my eyes away from worthless things. It is worthless to pursue someone else's life. Live the life that God has called you to live. Be content with what God has called you to have. Take what he has given you and say, I'm going to make of this what he wants me to make of this. It's not about you having someone else's life. Those things are worthless. And of course, you know, that's the 21st century un- 
uh, application of this. David obviously didn't have any of that to deal with, but he had a lot of his own issues. You're probably familiar with the Bathsheba story and how that basically train wrecked his, his reign, sullied his, his reputation. It ruined so much of his life. That, that one moment of looking across the way, seeing a woman that he didn't have and basically as the king forcing her to come to him and, and she was a married woman. He ends up killing her husband to, to hide the fact that he impregnated her. It's a whole thing. This is all in the Bible. The Bible's an honest book. It tells us a lot of things about a lot of people's mistakes because it's not about living a perfect life. It's about having a perfect savior who could live for us and forgive us. So if you're sitting here going, man, my eyes have not been directed towards worthy things. That, welcome to the club. Let's turn to Jesus. Let's find our hope in him. Okay, a couple more things here. A few more things. Look at verse 38. He says, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Um, the idea of, being, of the Lord being feared and I know that uh, one of our elders, Ray uh, Churchill, preached on this a few weeks back and don't need to rehash all that. But the idea of, being, of the Lord being feared is not that we're sitting in a corner terrified of him. That word feared really brings out the ideas of honoring, re- revering, worshiping, and living in humility before him. And, and that's the thing that God's grace does in us. It allows us to see God as God and respond to him as God, to treat him like the king he is. That we actually have to submit to him. And it's one of the things that we get to do and want to do as God works his grace in our lives. We get to see the fear of the Lord, this honor, reverence, and humility before him grow in us as he works in us. Okay, verse 39 says, turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Turn away the reproach that I dread. Now, reproach is not a word we throw around a whole lot. So what does that mean? Well, it means disgrace, it means shame. Um, it, it means other people looking down on us for whatever reason. And I think it's interesting that David writes here, turn away the reproach. Then look at these three words, that I dread. David is like every one of us, right? This, this, this is the scriptures. God is speaking to us because we need to know that we're not alone in this. Every one of us dreads what people think of us and whether they think highly of us or not. And I think as we grow in grace, we, we see this as being less and less important, what, what other people think of us. But it's a real struggle. It's, it's something that happens pretty much right around, oh, probably like 9, 10, 11 years old is when we start becoming kind of really truly aware of what other people think of us. And then that just sets us on a, like, a, on a terrible path through middle school and high school. And then 
you know, eventually we figure out who we are. And as we grow in grace, we begin to see that we, what God says of us is significantly more and in fact, vitally more important than what others think of us. But, but reproach and the dread that comes from reproach is a real thing. And that's why David, as a king, as the king of Israel, is praying that God would remove that reproach from him. He didn't outgrow his uh, fear of, of people and what they think of him. And so the only recourse is go to the Lord and see him meet us in that and remove it from us. And this is what Jesus does, right? Jesus took our reproach. When he was shamed and humiliated and mocked and insulted as he was being crucified on the cross, as he was rejected by his own family, rejected by the people he came to love and serve and did nothing but good towards, he was rejected by them, he was hated by them, he was abandoned by his best friends. This is the reality of what Jesus went through, but he went through this for you and me, that he would take the reproach that we dread and place that upon himself to take it from us. Verse 40 then says this, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. In your righteousness, give me life. This is the, um, this is the bridge, okay? This is the bridge we need to connect between um, Old Testament, under the law, David's understanding at that point in time of, of God's work to the deeper level of the gospel through Jesus. He's getting to it right here. In your righteousness, give me life. See, it's not David's righteousness that can give him life. It's not yours or mine that can give us life. It is only in the righteousness of Jesus that he would live a perfect, sinless, obedient life, but he lived it for you. He lived it in your place. He lived it so that you as a failure and me as a failure to be righteous could be righteous. And, and this is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, right? That, that God made Jesus who knew no sin. He didn't know a single drop of sin in his, in his life, but he was made to become sin. On the cross, he takes the sins and he absorbs our sin in himself. He becomes sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We get to be the righteous ones and have life, not because we actually were righteous, but because, we, but because we've been given the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness. And that's what gives us life. So think about this. The fact that you and I bring nothing but sin and rebellion, and shame, and reproach, and all these things, 
we bring nothing but that to God and God has nothing but righteousness in himself. Jesus is perfectly righteous, lives the only human life that was truly perfect. And then he gives us all of his righteousness and plops it into your life and says, here, now you're perfectly righteous. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we, that we proclaim, that we love, that we live in, that all of the righteousness of Jesus is given to us when we believe in him. All of it. When, so when God looks at us as we love and sit under Jesus Christ, as he becomes our source of life, he doesn't see us as wretched, terrible sinners that deserve condemnation. He doesn't look at us like that anymore. He, in fact, looks at us under perfection, righteousness, complete holiness, because the because we've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. So all of Jesus' righteousness is given to us, and all of our sin is given to him. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. We swap places. And that's a heck of a deal, you guys. Like, we don't have anything to bring to this except for our unrighteousness and yet we get all of his righteousness as he takes our unrighteousness. It's just amazing. So this is the bridge, right? This is what gets us to the life that we're called to live. It is the righteousness of God through Christ that we can live. That's the only way. And so as we get into verse 41, right, we're transitioning here and verse 40 and 41 essentially serve as our kind of as our highway to get from one place to another. We're getting from what God does in us by sustaining us and keeping us, by helping us love him, by giving us delight in him, by creating generosity, all these things, right? He's doing those things in us, but he's doing those things in us so that we will actually do things, or that he will rather do things through us. Look at verse 41. It says, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation, according to your promise. Let your steadfast love. This is a, a common phrase in the Psalms, especially, but really all throughout the scriptures. This idea of God's love as a steadfast love. What does that mean? Steadfast means it's unshaking. It's not changing. It's not like the love we have for each other so oftentimes, which is fickle and um, kind of comes and goes as we are feeling it, right? God's love isn't like that. God's love is steadfast. It is unshaking, unchanging, eternal, and the other way that David says, uh, talks of this is at, using this phrase, your salvation. The salvation of God is directly connected to the love of God, the steadfast love of God. Um, let me just take you quickly here. I'm going a little off book. Sorry, I don't have the, the passage in front of us on the screen. But, but look at what, Titus, Paul writes to Titus about all these things. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness 
of God our Savior appeared. All right, so goodness, loving kindness, these are all basically the concepts that are wrapped into steadfast love. When those things appeared, the things that God has, his goodness, his loving kindness, this is what happened. Verse 5 says, he saved us. When God's goodness and loving kindness appeared, he saved us. Salvation and the love of God, the steadfast love of God are completely connected. But he didn't save us because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So that's vital, right? The steadfast love of God doesn't come to us because we've earned it or because we've deserved it or because we've somehow paid for it. But it comes to us when we weren't deserving of any of it. That's what makes it so amazing. And so you have the steadfast love of God. You have the promises of God that are ultimately, they're they're mentioned here at the end of verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise, right? So God promised to bring this love and salvation to us. And here's the good news. He did that in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That, what that means is, that's Paul's way of saying, everything God promised to do, he actually did through Jesus for us. So this gets us to Christ, right? That the steadfast love of God, his salvation, according to his promise, has been fully realized, fully revealed, fully accomplished through Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's the internal work of God's grace. But how does this then lead us to live? Look, let's keep reading. We're going to fly through these quickly. Here's what he says. So then, then, so verse 42 is directly correlating back to verse 41. When God's salvation comes to us, then, here's what happens. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimony before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Okay, so we read all of that, but what's the overarching theme of of this external work of God's grace according to these verses? The thing that David primarily talks about in this stanza of the psalm is speaking the truths of God to others. He starts it by saying he will have an answer for him who taunts me, which is another way of saying him who doesn't believe, doesn't trust in this this same God and doesn't love God, right? So there's some opposition to this. David says, I'll have an answer for him because I trust in your word. He says in verse 43, he asked God to not take his word completely out of his mouth. 
He says in verse 46 that he will speak of his testimonies before kings. So here's the external working of this in our lives. It is, we speak it. We share it. We bring it out to others. We don't keep the good news to ourselves because that is fundamentally selfish gain. And we've already seen that God's grace overcomes selfish gain. He works in us to want to see more people have these beautiful, th- these beautiful things. Okay, so we speak of it. Okay, great. Here's the thing, though, and I want to hone in on this. Um, what we're called to do is clear. Right? We're called to speak God's truths. Have it as a part of our, our lives to, to share it with others. That's, that's clear from this text. What's not clear from this text is how we do that. And I think sometimes we, um, we as Christians, um, we're really good at getting what we should do and we're really bad at getting how we should do it. But how we do things is so important, if not as important as what we do. So let me take you to one place that really sheds light on this. It's in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can flip there. If, you not, if not, we'll have these words up on the screen for you. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3. If I can find it here, there it is. Um, oh, look, I put my little bookmark there. I didn't even... Use it. Okay. First Peter 3. We're going to start in verse 13. We're going to see a very uh, similar theme here from what we've just seen in 119, this idea of speaking. Um, but in the context, context matters here. Peter is talking about suffering at the hands of, un- uh, of unbelieving people, right? So it, this is written to a Roman empire era church. They were under great persecution. We don't live anything like they live in in that regard. But there's so many good principles for us nonetheless. So here's what he says. Verse 13 says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So he's starting this way. If If you're about what's good, the likelihood of someone trying to hurt you, harm you, do wrong to you is, is pretty slim. But it's not impossible because he goes on to say in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be, in tro- uh, be troubled. But, verse 15, here we go, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Let's stop there for a minute. All right, so this is a pro- probably familiar to a lot of you, maybe not all of you, but Peter is essentially saying this. Here's the issue. If you have hope, people are going to wonder where that hope is coming from, and they're going to ask you, and Peter says, so you should be ready to have a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that's in you. Be ready to speak of the gospel to anyone who asks. That's what he says. Okay, so that, that's very clearly correlating with what we just saw David say. 
I will have a defense for those who taunt me. I will speak your testimonies before kings and will not be put to shame, right? All this is kind of correlated. But now look at that Peter goes a little bit further in telling us how to do it. At the very end of verse 15, this is so important. So many of us need to have this tattooed in reverse on our foreheads. So every time we look in the mirror, we see this, right? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. All right. I don't think we want to believe this part of the Bible, do we? We, we like to get into arguments, especially when we don't actually have to be face-to-face with someone. We can just do it on a keyboard, but here I go again on the social media nonsense. So, um, but gentleness and respect being the hallmarks of our, of our sharing of the faith is a lost concept in our current society. It says in verse 16, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, spoken of badly, falsely, actually, in many cases, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than if it should be God's will than for doing evil. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. So what's the Bible telling us to do here? What's the call? The call is to be ready to share the grace of God that's in you so that more people can experience that grace and be be transformed by it, changed by it. What you are compelled about because of Jesus' work in your life you should share with others. Yes, true, absolutely true. But how you share that with others is so important. Gentleness and respect. Why, why, do we, why are we called here to, to gentleness and respect as we share the gospel? It's connected to what Paul, Peter rather says in verse 18 about Christ's suffering. Think about the sufferings that Christ endured. As the truly innocent one, he is placed on a cross. He is, he is suffering and dying like a criminal, though he had done nothing wrong. But did Jesus flail about and scream and hurl insults and humiliate those who were doing this to him? No, of course he didn't. How did Jesus receive suffering? He received it fully received it without saying a terrible word in exchange, without doing what he could have very easily have done. He could have called down a legion of angels to take everybody out. He could have sent lightning from the sky. He could have sent an earthquake to open up the heavens and swallow everyone up. God has the power to do all these things, and yet none of those things happened. Instead, what we see Jesus do is praying to the Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Peter is making the connection between Christ's suffering for sin and how he responded to it, to our response to suffering 
and our response to harm that others may bring to us. Rather than coming back at them with some, you know, angry response or frustration or belittling or attacking, we're called to respond with gentleness and respect because gentleness is rooted in the heart of Christ. That's who he is. He is gentle and lowly in heart. He says that himself. So we have the call to respond to God's, to the people around us, sharing the gospel, but doing so in a way that actually reflects who Jesus is. This is why I say gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. Because if we really are people of hope, if we really did believe, as the Bible teaches, that Jesus is the sovereign God of the universe who is in control of all things, has a plan and is fulfilling his plan, is working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1 says, if we really believed that, then we wouldn't be freaking out and running around saying the sky is falling just because someone we don't like is in the White House or because someone in Congress got elected or because CRT or whatever other nonsense Fox or CNN wants you to be mad about today. These things shouldn't rail against us and get us all fired up because Jesus is is amazing and he's hopeful. And if we were people of hope, more people would want to have Jesus in their lives. They would. We, the problem is we don't actually live within the hope that we have. That's the problem. That's why Peter connects the sharing of our faith with people asking for why we have hope. So I'm not, I'm not going to say this to bully anybody. Really, I'm not. I'm just going to ask you, has, if nobody has ever asked you why you have hope, it's maybe because you're not living like you have hope. Something to chew on. Something to think about. And as you talk about your hope, are you talking about it the way Jesus wants you to, which is through gentleness and respect? I know this might feel a little lovey-dovey and, you know, some of you guys will be like, well, you know, truth, blah, blah, blah. Truth matters. But how we convey truth matters as much. No one's telling you you got to like sing kumbaya with everybody, right? That's not what we're, that's not what we're saying. Listen, that's not. But you're not going to always agree with everyone. You're not always going to like everyone. You're not always going to be, dr- I, totally. But living your life in a way that displays the truth of God in the way that Jesus displays the truth of God. Would anyone have called Jesus a wimp? No, he wasn't a wimp. He was a strong confident person who knew God's word and he was willing to speak up but he never did it in a way that belittled humiliated or shamed anyone and neither should we we have the amazing work of God in our lives and that work should come out of us in a way that actually displays that amazing work that's what, I, that's what we're seeing so I'll stop there because, man, we could keep going forever, but we got to stop. So I'm already over time. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get going here. Jesus, we are so grateful for how gracious you are, how kind you are, how merciful you are to us.
Lord, I, I, I'm such a fool. And, and I am just so grateful that you would love me despite all the things that I've said in my life and done to others, that you would forgive those things and draw me to you and help me to see who you are. God, I'm thankful for the work you're doing in our lives in this room. You are doing thousands of things. Most of us aren't aware of very many of them. So God, we just pray that we would continue to entrust our hearts to you, that we would actually live out what we believe in a genuine way that points others to you. And we pray that you would meet us now, speaking through your spirit, however it is you, you want to speak to our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.